All right, good evening, folks. Hope you're here ready to study the Bible tonight. All right, because I'm ready to teach. Uh, Before we get into our uh, study tonight, just a couple of things. First of all, for any of you that are interested, I realize this is late, 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 late notice. But for any of you that have a, uh, a clear schedule on Thursday evening, I have up here on this speaker about 90 free Diamondbacks tickets to Thursday night's game versus the Cardinals. You can take as many as you like because we're just getting rid of them. All right? So there's 90 Diamondback tickets up there. There's enough for everybody here if each of you want one. Okay? Wait till the end of the class. Yeah. Because I'm going to talk about love and all that so that you won't be trampling over each other on your way to get the Diamondback tickets. The game, I think, is at 6.40. It's Thursday. This Thursday. Uh, all I can tell you, it's... They're inside the stadium. Yeah. I mean, they're up in the 300. 312, 315. Yeah. They're good. It's a free ticket, you know? So, anyway... Yeah, yeah. So the, your only cost would be uh, your parking and food. So you know. But seriously, we'd love for you to. I'd love for to get get rid of them. The other thing is, don't forget about refreshments back there. And then uh, next thing, uh, I know that momentum is very, very key to a ministry like this. It's like you build up momentum, you know, get the word out, and I, even just like a holiday weekend can tend to. You know, either people forget or they got other things or they're still out of town or whatever. And and we can't, you know, get some momentum going. But uh, I'm really counting on you folks uh, to help me out with that come October. Because in October, and it's not anybody's fault, it's just the way it is, our whole schedule really blows up in October. If you've been on the website, you know that we're going to miss three Tuesdays in October. Because our schedule for the mine follows the kids' schedule in Chandler. That's why, like, we have Kaboom on Tuesday night. We have the 5th and 6th grade ministry on Tuesday night. When the kids are off those two weeks for the Chandler School District, we're off too. So we won't meet on the 3rd of October. We won't meet on the 10th of October. And then the kids' directors got together, and because Tuesday falls on the 31st this year of October, which is Halloween, They decided not to try to compete with Halloween night and have anything here at the church that they wanted to cancel the 31st, which means that we're really stuck having to cancel too. So we're only going to be having the mine two Tuesdays in October, the 17th and the 24th. But what I would like to do is we're getting some really new promo materials coming out in October, and I'd really like... Uh, if you guys could help me to promote this during the month of October, so come November, when we come back, that we're going to have another really big crowd for November, and then we take the break for Christmas, then hopefully we can get some momentum built up quickly in January as well. And the cool thing is, uh, I mean, pretty soon next year, we'll be over in the new building, which will be cool. We'll be occupying one of those rooms over there. So anyway, I say all that. I know that's a lot of information to throw out, but I'm a little concerned about October only because I know we're going to be gone a lot in October. We're going to miss out. But I hope that you guys will hang in there with me and 
I think when we do get together, God's going to have some good stuff for us. And uh, I don't want you guys or other folks to miss out tonight. Any announcements from my wife tonight? None. All right. Wow. All right. Let's get into it tonight. First Peter chapter 3. No, I'm sorry. First Peter chapter 2, verse 21. I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm so excited about chapter 3. First Peter chapter 2, verse 21. By the way, doesn't the room look nice? Thank everyone who uh, come in, did all this. I mean, the carpets are clean, the walls painted, uh, just so many cool things. And we just thank everyone and every, anyone who participated in making the room really nice for us. All right. As I share with you, too, one of the things that I want to try to sell the mind with is this. Uh, it doesn't matter what kind of Bible background you come from. The mine is for you. you. You don't have to have any Bible background. I am running into a lot of people that one of the reasons why they're not coming to the mine is because they think they have to have like a seminary degree to come to the mine. They think they need to really... It's like, no, 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 no. You come to the mine and over the years, you know, you're going to accumulate some hopefully good knowledge about the Bible. It's like you're getting a Bible college education without all the tests and the papers and the tuition and all that kind of stuff. But the other thing is come as your schedule allows. That even though we are going through a book, like First Peter, each week can stand on its own. So don't feel like, okay, if I can't be here every week, that I, you know, there's no sense in me coming, whatever. I keep telling people, come as your schedule allows. That's just so huge. So I don't want to go back and, again, rehash all of last week, but, but I do want to just, again, bring this up because it's so key to the understanding of the entire book. Remember... This book was written to Christians who are under tremendous persecution because of their relationship with Jesus Christ. They are living inside the Roman Empire. They are living under the Roman Emperor Nero. And they are under tremendous persecution. And so Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is writing this letter to them to try to encourage them to hang in there and to realize the purposes of God behind why He's allowing this suffering to take place. And last week, we started to look at the fact of what a disciple is all about. And the, one of the aspects of discipleship is that a disciple, a follower, is not above his teacher or his master. And if Jesus Christ suffered, then the logical conclusion is that those of us who follow Jesus will be called upon at times to suffer as well. Because one of the things that we grow from in life is we grow from people. Alright? We grow from our relationship with people. Another way we grow is from pain. We don't like that, but a lot of times our best growth takes place when pain comes into our life. And then there's the whole idea of sometimes, and this is what was happening with Peter in his day, sometimes we're growing because of people hurling the pain our way, which is the way it was with the people who were reading Peter's letter back to them. Now, look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. So Peter starts out with this. He says, no, notice, for to this you were called, you know, one of the callings of God on our life we saw last week was to be with Christ. That's being a disciple, to be with Him, all right? 
But another calling of God that God lays upon us as one of His followers is that since Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example for you to follow in His steps. So part of that calling of God on our life is to follow the example of Jesus was this. Jesus suffered. He didn't deserve to suffer. I mean, Pilate even said, I I find no fault in this man. So Jesus did not deserve to suffer. But Jesus suffered. He suffered for the benefit of others, for you and for me, so that He could bring us into a relationship with God. And so because our Lord suffered, He left us an example that there's going to be times in our life where we're going to suffer unjustly, where we don't deserve it, where just because we are a Christian and we name the name of Christ and we're trying to follow Christ, we're going to suffer too. And Peter is saying, so follow in His steps and be willing to do so. Because the follower of Christ is not greater than Christ. And if Christ suffered unjustly, God's going to call us to suffer unjustly at times as well. This is a beautiful picture in the original language. This phrase, follow in his steps. Just as a child painstakingly and with great effort follows the lines of the alphabet in kindergarten and first grade or even before that to try to you know, write the English language. That's what this is saying. It's saying, as a follower of Jesus Christ, just like that that child that painstakingly looks at their teacher writing an A on the board for the very first time or whatever and trying to trace that A with a lot of effort so that they can copy and follow that example... He's saying that's the kind of painstaking effort that we as Christians need to follow Jesus Christ with. That He left us a pattern. He left us an example. And we need to, just like that child, take very good care and effort to follow His example with a lot of of care and, and diligence, if you will. Now, another thing I just wanted to throw out here is this verse really captured a man by the name of Charles Sheldon's attention almost a hundred years ago now. Charles Sheldon was captured by this concept of following in the steps of Jesus. And so he wrote a book called In His Steps by Charles Sheldon. It is a book that prompted the big movement a few years ago now within Christianity WWJD, what would Jesus do? That whole phrase, that whole mindset, that whole concept comes from the book In His Steps by Charles Sheldon. If you've never read that book, it's a Christian classic. I would encourage you to read that book if you've never read In His Steps by Charles Sheldon. And the whole book and the whole concept is in every and each situation of life, what would Jesus do? Because I am called upon as a follower of Christ to painstakingly and with great effort follow the steps of Jesus. And if Jesus suffered, then He's left us an example that we are going to suffer too. Now, notice though, His suffering, just like our suffering, will have purpose. There is nothing that we go through in our life purposeless. There's always a purpose for it. And so notice, in verse 24 of 1 Peter 2, 
He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we may cease from sinning and live for righteousness. It's not just, oh, i got a ticket to heaven. I'm on my way to heaven. It's not just that my sins are forgiven. It's that it may impact me right here and now to where I realize that by the death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, He has broken the power that sin has over me. And I no longer, according to Paul in the book of Romans, have to serve sin. I am no longer a slave to sin. Therefore, as a Christian, when I sin, it's because I choose to. It's not that the devil has a power over me that I cannot stand up to. The Bible says, greater is he who is in you and me than he that is in the world. I don't have to follow Satan. I don't have to listen to his lies. I don't have to allow the demonic oppression of my life to drag me away from Christ. I can stand up to any attack. I can stand strong in the Lord because part of why Jesus Christ died and rose again was so that I could have a power in my life that could overcome sin and where I would see victory in my life rather than defeat. Doesn't mean perfection, but Jesus Christ came and died and rose again, leaving me an example to follow in His steps and also to give me a power beyond myself to where I can stand up to Satan and I can stand up to sin and I can stand up to my own flesh and say no. You see, God's grace allows me to say no to the things I shouldn't do and yes to the things that I should do. And that is part of the purpose for why Jesus Christ came to this earth. You'll notice in verse 25, He beautifully portrays the fact that because of what they were going to, it actually turned them back to their shepherd and the, the one who really cared for their souls. You see, when we go through suffering, folks, we all know this, it can either make us better, as you've heard, or bitter. And, and a Christian can, two Christians can go through practically the same thing, and one Christian be, can become better and stronger and closer to God because of it, and another Christian can become very bitter and drift away from God because of the very same thing, based upon how they respond to the ministry that God is giving them in their life to overcome the circumstances of their life. One will choose to receive the grace of God and become a better person. The other one will choose to reject the grace of God and become a bitter person. And so the Bible just says here, hey, these folks went through a tough time, but instead of turning them away from God, they've actually now, verse 25, turned back to the shepherd and guardian of their souls. And Jesus Christ is watching out for them. And nothing is happening to them and nothing is happening to you that is outside the care of your good shepherd. And if you ever want a good passage to read that will encourage you as a Christian, read John chapter 10. The passage where Jesus declares at the very beginning, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for my sheep. And my sheep hear my voice and, and they know me and I know them and they follow me. I mean, just a beautiful picture going back to even Psalm 23 about the Lord is my shepherd and all of that. Beautiful picture. The shepherd does not drive his sheep in the area of Palestine where Jesus grew up and where Jesus lived. The shepherd does not drive the sheep. The shepherd leads the sheep from out in front. Now, there are some places in the world 
again, depending on where these shepherds are from and the culture or whatever, where the shepherd goes behind the sheep and drives them from behind. But where Jesus grew up, the shepherd is out in front, lovingly leading them from in front. And that's the way Jesus leads us. He doesn't drive us. He lovingly leads us. And we need to just put ourselves into the care of our shepherd. Now, some may wonder then, and I'm just going to stop here in just a few moments, but I want to get through the first part of chapter 3, because some may wonder, okay, Peter, why all of a sudden you're talking about the theme of your book, which is all this suffering and what we're going through and how we need to keep focused on Christ and, and, and keep following in His steps no matter what. Then you start introducing this stuff about the home and the relationship between the husband and the wife here in 1 Peter chapter 3. Where is that coming from? How does that fit in? I think it fits in here for a couple of reasons. Number one, we all know that sometimes when we go through very difficult times, that we are looking for those places of refuge in our life. And just like in Peter's day, these Christians were under tremendous persecution by the world in which they lived. And so it would be very important for them to know that when they went home at night, that their home was a place of refuge, a place of peace, a place of safety. And so I think that's one of the reasons why he's saying to husbands and wives here, hey folks, don't make the home another place where the spouse feels piled upon or put upon that that spouse and everyone who lives in that home, that that Christian home should be a place where we can escape the rigors and, and the things that's going on out there in the world. Because the world can be rough. And the world can be cruel. And the world can be a place of pain. But hopefully when I come home, my home can be a place where I find refuge away from that. And where I can be encouraged by all of us who are living in that home. That's the way God wants the home to be. That's, that's the ultimate model for the home. It's a place of encouragement and rest and refuge and all of that. And so I think that's one of the reasons why He directs His attention to the husbands and the wives in 1 Peter chapter 3, in the very middle of His letter. I think there's another reason. If you read this passage, and I'm not going to take time to go through and pick out all these little individual things that Peter is saying to the wife and the husband. You guys can read it and study it for yourself. But it's very clear to me that another thing that he's saying there in those first couple of verses of chapter 3 is focus on what's really important. Focus on the internal. Focus on the eternal. Don't focus on the external stuff. Don't focus on the temporal stuff. Don't focus on the things of this earth. And how important is that? Because... They were going through a time of intense persecution where maybe in their circumstances they're looking around and thinking, man, it's so hard to, to, to attach myself to anything that, that's not of this earth that's affecting me. And so again, a place where I want to go to be able to, to latch on to the eternal and the things that really matter and to be able to have people point me to the things that really matter so that I can get my eyes off of my circumstances and all the hardship that I'm going through in this world is in the home. So Peter says, don't focus on the external in your home. Make the spiritual and the eternal things more important than anything on this earth. 
Because especially when husbands and wives and children and anyone is part of that home is going through a tough time, the last thing they need is for people in the home to start focusing on the temporal things of life, the earthly things of life, the things that will pass away, rather than helping us all stay focused on what really matters. And again, that encouragement should come from within the home. And then he goes in, in verse 8 of chapter 3, I think to address we brothers and sisters in Christ. Because again, he's saying, you know what? We're all getting beat up out here in the Roman Empire. The last thing we need is for our brothers and sisters in Christ to be beating us up too when we go to church. So notice what he says to the Christians in verse 8 of chapter 3. Finally, he's a preacher, isn't he? He's got three more chapters to go. And he said, now I'm about ready to finish. Finally. All of you be harmonious, sympathetic, affectionate, compassionate, and humble. Do not return evil for evil or insult for insult. That's what the world's doing to you. That's what you're going through in the Roman Empire. The place of of a body of believers, the church, should be just the opposite. It should be a place where we come, notice, to be blessed by others. In fact, he commands us here to bless others because you were called, verse 9, to inherit a blessing. You see, again, the temptation when any of us is going through a tough time is to let our commitment to Christ begin to slip. It's almost like when we go through a tough time, it's like, again, we can either get stronger and we can either get closer to Christ and move closer to Christ, or we can go through a rough time and almost just like there, throw up our hands and go, oh, what's the use? And we begin to drift away from Christ. And if we drift away from Christ, our attitude's going to be affected. Our actions are going to be affected. We're going to begin to bite and devour other people within the home. We're going to begin to bite and devour our brothers and sisters in Christ. And Peter's reminding us, don't do that, folks. If you know you're going to get beat up out there in the world because of your stand for Christ and your relationship to Christ, then make your Christian home a place of refuge. And if you know you're going to get hurt and you're going to be insulted and you're going to be persecuted out there in the world and in the marketplace because you're a Christian, then please make the church a place where brothers and sisters in Christ gather a place of blessing a place where you're encouraged, a place where you're refreshed, a place where you're uplifted, rather than a place where you're beaten down and discouraged and stomped upon and gossiped about and slandered and all of that. And I love this word, bless. In the Greek language, it's the word eulogia, which means eulogy. And usually in our culture, when we think about eulogizing somebody, the only time we think about that is in relationship to a funeral, a memorial service, when somebody has died and somebody gets up and eulogizes them and tells about how wonderful they are. Well, you'll notice here a very important principle. Peter and God is saying, don't wait until that person that you love and appreciate dies to get up and say something nice about them. Tell them how much they mean to you before they die. Not waiting until after they die. That's what he says. Bless others. Eulogize them. Tell them how much they mean to you. So I had to stop right there. God was just like... 
And I thought to myself, who are some people in my life that I need to go to and I need to, before another day goes by, say, hey, I don't tell you this enough. You really mean a lot to me. I really appreciate you. Because I don't know something could happen to me. And I don't want to wait until it's too late or until something happens to them to get up and say a bunch of nice things about them. I want them to hear it from me now. And that's what Peter's calling us to do. To bless others now, not later on. I'm going to just stop after verse 12, because notice verse 10. He gives us a prescription for leading an enjoyable life, because guess what? God wants us to enjoy life. Even though sometimes we're going through some really hard times, God wants us to enjoy life. And notice the real secret of enjoying life is making sure I control this. Because he says in verse 10, For the one who wants to love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from uttering deceit. And he goes on to say some other things, but the first thing is most important. He says, you know what? You can bring a lot of pain on your own life by just letting your lips and your tongue fly. And he says, the person who truly wants to live a blessed and good life is the one who learns to control what comes out of their mouth. Because they're actually going to be much better off. Other people are going to like them more. They're going to find that they can navigate life a lot better if they can just learn to control their tongue. And folks, the Bible teaches this is not something we can do in our own power. That we need to ask God for help. That's why in the Bible it says to pray, God, help me to guard my lips today and to make sure that I say things that are only edifying, that build other people up rather than criticizing them and tearing them down. We need the supernatural power of God to do that because James chapter 3 says that no man can tame the tongue. No man can tame the tongue. But that doesn't mean that God can't help us to tame the tongue. And we need God's help. And folks, the book of Proverbs says that death and life are in the power of the tongue. And we all know that because we know how powerful the tongue is because we've been on the other side of those hurtful words at times. And we know how much it pierces to hear people say hurtful things. So why then in turn would we turn around and say hurtful things to others when we know ourselves how hurtful it is to hear those things? So Peter gives us some really good advice. He says, just go through each day and just ask God to help you and me put a watch over our tongue and our mouth. You know, our words are like toothpaste. Once you squeeze it out, you can't get the toothpaste back in. Have you ever tried to get toothpaste back into a tube of toothpaste? It's impossible. I mean, you know, I've tried toothpicks. I've tried, I mean, you just, you, once the toothpaste is out, it's out. And that's the way our words are. We can even say that, oh, I didn't mean it, or I was wrong, whatever. But once it's out, it's out. It's out there. And the sad thing is, we live in a culture today where people are just waiting to hear bad things about other people. Did you hear so and about so-and-so? Really? It's like we just latch on to that. You know, we just can't wait to hear that next slice of juicy gossip that comes down the, the road. Peter is saying, folks, if you want to you wanna love life 
You want life to be good to you. You want others to, to be good to you. Then make sure you always treat them with respect. And you and I always watch what we say about other people. That's just really going to be huge. All right. Before we move on. Comments. Questions. No snide remarks now. <laughs> Got to be nice to me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You notice that was a good place for me to stop, right? I might be dumb, but I'm not stupid. No, no, seriously. Any thoughts? Well, I do think, especially in America, at this time in our history, we don't know what real persecution is all about. And unless things change before the Lord comes back, we probably won't. Uh, the people in heaven that probably will find out are the Christians from China, and Russia, and India, and Muslim countries, and places like that where when, just like in Peter's day, if you stood up and you were baptized publicly, identifying yourself with Christ, oh my goodness, the, the, persecu- the things that they, I mean, they lost family members, they were disowned and you know what sometimes that happens even in you know today uh, you know but a lot of times in America for those of us who were born in the United States of America and our families are here usually doesn't cost us too much to come to church and to identify ourselves as a Christian or whatever it may cost us a little bit in the marketplace and you know we may be passed over for a promotion or you know, they may be talking about you behind your back at the water cooler at the office because, you know, of, you know, you go to church and whatever. That kind of persecution. But this kind of persecution? No, very few of us know what that's like. People on the mission field, people in other cultures know what this is like, but we really don't know firsthand what this type of persecution is like. Yeah. Right. And that's very possible. Again, there may come a day in America where it really does cost us to be a Christian, to come to church, to identify with Christ. That day may come. Yeah, very well could be. There's certainly nothing in the Bible that says that that couldn't happen. And we're going to sort of talk a little bit about that tonight because you'll notice in the next passage, beginning in verse 13, he first wants to tell us about some things when we suffer that we need to remember. He says, when suffering, don't forget about the blessing of God and don't be afraid and intimidated by those or threatened by those who are doing the persecution. Notice what he says. First of all, who is going to harm you if you are devoted to what is good? In other words, for the most part in the world, when you and I are doing what's right and we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, usually people leave us alone. But... He does leave the out that that doesn't always work out because just like Jesus, Jesus did everything right and was still persecuted and put to death. And that there's times where Christians, even doing everything right, is going to suffer persecution. But what he's simply saying is, let's not forget that if we're truly devoted to doing what's right and good, a lot of times we save ourselves from from suffering because a lot of times our suffering comes from doing things that are wrong and we're just suffering the consequences for our own sin and the bad choices that we've made. But I do like this word devoted because the word means to burn with zeal. And he's really, I think, even checking in on the attitude of those he's writing to saying, are we really burning with zeal to do good? 
Is that really what our desire is? To get up every day and to, to have a zeal to do what's right and what's good. And then, if it's God's will that we suffer, so be it. But then he says, verse 14, But in fact, if you happen to suffer for doing what's right, notice, not for what's doing wrong, because God would just say here, as he says throughout First Peter, if you and I suffer for doing wrong, then we're just going to reap what we sow. We're just suffering the consequences that God has built in to those wrong choices that we make. But if you suffer for doing what's right, notice, you are blessed. You and I will have the blessing of God on our life in a special way when we suffer for doing what's right. Later on, what Peter says is that the Spirit of God literally rests on you in a special way. It's almost like God gives you a special measure of grace when you and I are going through suffering for Him. Just like in the book of Acts. When they were stoning Stephen, the Bible says that Stephen was enabled by God as they were throwing rocks at him, killing him, to look up into heaven and to to see Jesus up there at the right hand of God the Father. And the Bible says that Stephen and Jesus were actually having a conversation while they were stoning him. Because God was giving Stephen a special measure and manifestation of His grace. You see, I always tell people, and maybe there's somebody even in this room, that you had a relative or somebody you knew who died very violently in a, a murder I just I have a, a gal in my small church here on Sunday morning at 8.30. I did her son's funeral just a few weeks ago here at Cornerstone. He was 30 years old. He was murdered by five men here in, in uh, Phoenix a few months ago. And basically, he was knocked out, robbed, and then left in a canal where he actually drowned. Uh, very violent murder. One of the things that I just wanted her, I couldn't, you know, I had to bring this weeks later. I I was helped by the Spirit of God when I could, what I could say when, you know, the timing of it all. But she was ready to hear this, where in Acts chapter 7, I was trying to encourage her because one of the things that really has caused her great pain in her grieving even more than the normal grief is how her son died. And I said, don't forget, even though you and I don't understand that because we've never been through it, that I believe with examples like Stephen in the book of Acts, that there are times in our life where when we go through times like that, those extreme circumstances, that God is with us in a special way. Just like the psalmist says when he says, even though I go through the valley of the shadow of death, you're with me. And that, that I believe that her son had the ministry of God's angels in a special way, and had the ministry of God and His grace in a special way, and maybe God, maybe it didn't even hurt as much as it could have. I don't know. But I just know that what the Bible says is when you and I suffer for what's right, there's a special manifestation of blessing on our life. And then this is the same word, blessed, that is used in the Gospels of what we call the Beatitudes, where Jesus says, Blessed are they that... In fact, you know what? Keep your finger there. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 5. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew's Gospel, the very first book of the New Testament, in chapter 5, beginning in verse 3, 
Jesus uses the same word that Peter uses in 1 Peter 3.13 or 14 over and over again. They're called the Beatitudes because they're the blessings of Jesus Christ upon those who follow Him. Notice, blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil things about you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad because your reward is great in heaven, for they persecuted the prophets before you in the same way. Which ties into the message of Peter we said in the very first week where Peter again was reminding them about this great inheritance that God has for them in heaven and that God's best is awaiting them in heaven because God's not going to give us His best down here on earth because then we would have to leave it behind. God is giving us His best when we get there so that we can enjoy it for all of eternity. That doesn't mean God doesn't bless us here. But His best blessings are yet to come. That's what Jesus teaches and that's what Peter teaches. Now, back to 1 Peter chapter 3. Notice in verse 14, besides being remembering that God blesses us, he says, and do not be terrified of them or be shaken. Don't allow these folks who are persecuting you, I don't care if it's Nero, the Roman emperor, to intimidate you, to put fear into you. Because the one whom you are serving, he alone is God. And Paul said in Romans, if God be for us, who can be against us? And we can stand up and not have to be afraid. Because if God is behind us and supporting us, there is nothing that they can do. The worst thing Jesus says they can do to you is take your physical life. They can't touch your soul. They can't touch eternity. Okay, maybe you're martyred for the sake of Christ. That's all that they can do to you. They can't do anything more than that. If you ever get a chance and you want to be inspired and motivated, read Fox's Book of Martyrs. How many have ever heard of Fox's Book of Martyrs? Few of you have. Wow. It's a book that basically, it's about that, it, it, it recounts a lot of the stories of the martyrs of church history. Those who were burned at the stake and impaled on a stake and crucified. and A lot of the disciples, a lot of the first century Christians, whatever. What they had to go through, like in the time of Peter, their stories are contained in history, from history in this book. I mean, they are historical accounts. Uh, it's just, wow. Man, these people just put it all on the line and said, hey, I'm not going to renounce my faith in Christ. Kill me if you want to. But I'm not going to... I mean, it goes back to even the stories in the Bible of Daniel being thrown into the lion's den or his three friends who was thrown into the fire. They said to the king, King, maybe our God will deliver us. Maybe He won't. I know He can, but we're not going to bow down to that image. And you know the story. The king threw them into the fire, thought they'd burn up instantly. They didn't burn up. In fact, the Bible says there wasn't even a... They weren't even singed. And that there was somebody walking around in the fire with them. One like the Son of God. And I always say, 
Jesus Christ never promises to keep us from the fire, but He always promises to go with us through the fire. And we always have to keep that in mind. You may be going through the fire right now, but no, you are not going alone. You are blessed, and you have nothing to fear. God is not allowing you and I to go through the fire to defeat us or to destroy us in any way. He is allowing us to go through the fire to purify us, to strengthen us, and to witness about the amazing God that we say that we know in a personal way. So, why do we suffer? Look at verse 15 of chapter 3. We suffer because we're willing to say that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that's the real rub. Not that Jesus Christ is God. You see, if Christians in the Roman Empire would have stood up and said, Jesus Christ is God, all the Romans and even Nero would have said, oh, that's nice, we've got about 300 gods and he's just one of many gods. That wasn't the rub. The rub was that Christians were standing up saying, no, 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 you don't get it. Jesus Christ is not just one of many gods in the Roman Empire. Jesus Christ is Lord. He's the only God. Caesar is not God. So I'm not going to bow to Nero. I'm not going to kneel to Nero. I'm not going to obey Nero when Nero's edicts violate the commands of God because Nero, Caesar, is not Lord. And none of these gods like Saturn and Jupiter and all of that and the Greek, none of those are gods. Jesus is Lord. That's what caused the rub. That's why they... And you know what, folks? Things haven't changed much. Because you and I could go out there in the world today and we could, like a lot of people say, Jesus Christ is just one of many ways to God. And that wouldn't bother people at all. Or we could say Jesus Christ is one of many gods and you just pick which one you like. And, you know, as I say here, you know, it's that Burger King religion. Have it your way. You know, whatever you want, whatever makes you feel good. But see, there's no rub there. The rub comes in whenever Jesus claimed to be the Lord. That's where the rub is. And that's why they were suffering. Not because they were standing up because he was just a God, but because he was the Lord God. So before we suffer, notice what Peter says. Set Christ apart as Lord in your hearts. In other words, before you even maybe go into suffering, you and I need to settle who Christ is. Because if we're not sure who Christ is, when the rubber meets the road and when things begin to get hot, and when persecution starts to turn up the heat, if we haven't settled who Jesus Christ is, we might just back off and say, yeah, yeah, you're right. He's not the only way to heaven. You're right. Or he's not really Lord. And that's why Peter is saying it's so important that Christians know what they believe and why they believe it, especially in relationship to Jesus. And to make sure that we have settled that he is Lord. And settle it before that challenge to our faith ever comes and why he's lord because then notice while we are suffering 
we should always, verse 15, be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks about the hope you possess. I love this verse. Because what it's simply reminding us of as Christians is this. That there comes a point and a place in our walk with God where our life, especially when we're going through tough times, especially when we're going through trials, especially when we're going through difficult circumstances, is just so distinct from anything that other people in the world have ever seen before that you don't even have to go to them and witness. That they will come out of the woodwork and come to you and ask you and me, what makes you tick? Why, how can you be going through what you're going through and still have that joy and that peace and that love and that positive... How can you do that? And that's when God opens up those flood of opportunities to witness to the power and to the grace and the presence of God in our lives. They'll ask us. You see, and Peter said this before, if you and I are living the kind of life that's just like everybody else in the world, there's no distinction. But Peter says... When you and I live a life of distinction, a life that's different than others who we're living around, then people are going to, okay, what makes you different? And they're actually going to come a point where if we're sensitive to those opportunities, God's going to give us those opportunities where people are going to come up and say, what makes you tick? Because you're different from me and I want to find out why you're different. That's why if you read and study the Gospels, Jesus Christ was not after a large following. If you read the Gospels and the calls of discipleship that He made on people, He wasn't after a large following. He was after a committed group of disciples and He was after quality, not quantity. That's why He would say, you want to be one of My disciples? You've got to forsake everything and follow Me. You want to be one of My disciples? You've got to take up your cross daily and follow Me with millions of Christians who have about that level of commitment. But Jesus can impact the world with just a few Christians who are truly committed to Him. That's why when you read the book of Acts, it only took a few people to turn the world upside down because those people in Acts were truly committed to Jesus Christ. I mean, they had settled it. Jesus Christ is my Lord and I'm going after it, and I'm just, I'm living for Him. And there's just, that's it. It's settled. I mean, there was commitment there. And Jesus took those few committed followers, the Bible says, and literally turned the known world upside down. It doesn't take a lot of Christians to make an impact. It just takes a few committed ones. So think about that. That's why I get excited when I you know, hear what Pastor Lynn's vision for Cornerstone Christian Fellowship is because he sees this church as becoming a real influence in Chandler, Arizona. And I think to myself, folks, a couple weeks ago, we had 3,500 people on this campus. Think if just 10%, 350, were just totally, totally committed to Jesus Christ. What 350 totally committed followers of Jesus Christ could do in Chandler. They could turn Chandler 
upside down. And that's what God is saying. You know, settle it. Set Jesus Christ apart in your heart. Settle who He is. Because you know what? When we settle who Jesus Christ is in our lives and who He is to us, then we become settled. But you and I aren't going to be settled until we settle who Jesus Christ is. Let me share that with you, and then I'm going to stop in case anybody has any good comments. Go back to the book of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy in the New Testament. It's right past 1 Timothy. Right before Titus. Right before Philemon in Hebrews. Paul the Apostle is trying to encourage Timothy in 2 Timothy. The book of encouragement. In fact, I'm going through this book on Wednesday morning with the ladies' Bible study over here in the sanctuary. And, and this verse is one that I'm going to touch on tomorrow morning. Notice in verse 12, Paul's thought here. He says, just like Peter, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, because of this, because of what? Because he's appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the gospel. Because of this, in fact, I suffer as I do. But I'm not ashamed of suffering for being a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now here's why. Because, because, I know the one in whom my faith is set. And I am convinced that he is able to protect what has been entrusted to me until that day. Notice again those words. The reason I'm not ashamed to suffer for being a preacher of the gospel, Paul says, is because I know the one in whom my... I have settled who God is. Therefore, Paul says, I'm settled. I'm settled. Because I settled who God is in my life. You see... Again, that's what makes a church like Cornerstone so cool because there's a lot of people who come onto our campus every week. They haven't settled that yet. They're still searching. And Cornerstone is a great church to search and to begin to settle who God is in your life. But then there comes a point, and that's where ministries like the mind comes in, where we need to challenge those who have settled it to make sure it's settled and to go up to that other level. Because it's one thing to come to a place like Cornerstone where we can search for God and where we can, okay, yes, I, I do believe Jesus Christ is my Savior. I'm going to commit my life to Him. But then there's that other level. And that's what Peter's calling us to tonight. To settle it so that then God can use my life, as we've already talked about throughout Peter, to impact other people. So that other people can see the difference that Jesus Christ has made in my life and come up to me and say, what is that hope? Where's that hope coming from? How can you be filled with hope and all this confidence and all this expectation? And then that's where we can open up the gates and say, ah, well, it's because of my relationship with Jesus Christ. He's the one who gives me that hope. And, and my hope is based upon His Word. And, and I can trust His Word because God doesn't lie and, and He doesn't change His mind and it's an anchor for my soul. And I mean, it just can open up all those opportunities. Remember something, folks, that I've shared before in here too. I used to hear this, well, you Christians live by faith, but I don't need to live by faith. You know, that faith and that Christianity and that relationship, that's a crutch. And that's okay for you. You can have your crutch. I don't, listen, folks, everybody on the planet lives by faith. 
It's not that Christians live by faith and people who don't know Christ don't live by faith. We all live by faith. The question is, what's our faith in? The examples I always use, you go down to Sky Harbor Airport tonight and you fly out, you're putting your faith in that pilot and that airplane company to get you to your destination safely. Are you not? Yes, you are. When you and I go out to eat at a restaurant, are we not putting our faith in the people who have prepared our food that we're not going to get sick after we eat it? Of course we are. That's faith. You are entrusting yourself. When you go take your car to a garage to get it fixed, you are entrusting that that mechanic or those mechanics are going to fix your car and not rip you off. You are placing your faith, you are placing your trust in other people, other things. And here's all God is saying. God is saying that's okay, but don't you realize that sooner or later you're going to get burned when you put your faith in other people. And anything on this earth and anything that was made by human hands and anything human is eventually going to break down and fail. And humans are going to let you down. Even the very best of humans are going to let you down. So if you put your faith in the stock market or something, it's going to fail. It's not going to always come out the way you... But if you put your faith in God, that's where our faith needs to be. That's the only difference. Christians, it's not, it's not the way we're living. It's where our faith is placed that makes the difference. We're saying... My faith is in nothing on this earth because there's nothing on this earth that's stable. Everything of, of this earth is unstable. The only thing that's stable is God and my relationship with Him. So I choose to place my faith in Him rather than anything on this earth. And anybody who's lived on the earth long enough knows you put your faith in other people or things of this earth, you've been disappointed. You've been disappointed. But notice back in 1 Peter, Paul says, you put your faith in God, you'll never be put to shame. You'll never be put to shame. In fact, notice in verse 16 and 17, I'll just finish this part out. Yet do it, 1 Peter 3.16, yet when you give an answer, and I do like this, I think this is very important, do the answer with courtesy and respect. In other words, when those people come up and say, hey, what, what's different about you or whatever, that we speak the truth, but as the Bible teaches, that we do it in love and we do it patiently and we do it compassionately and that we don't try to ram the gospel and our Lord down their throats and push them away. So sometimes... It's the way we do it that's just as important. And that's what Peter's saying. When they ask you, when they come up and ask you about your Lord, let's make sure that we answer them with courtesy and respect, keeping a good conscience, so that those who slander your good conduct in Christ may be put to shame when they accuse you. Because then the only thing that they have to come up with are lies and things that they have to make up rather than the truth. In other words, back to what? Don't give them ammunition. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if God wills it, than for doing evil. And that's exactly what the readers of this letter a couple thousand years ago were going through. They were suffering tremendous persecution because they were taking a stand for Jesus Christ in the midst of the Roman Empire. But Jesus Christ was blessing them. 
And he was using them to be a tremendous witness within the Roman Empire. And many people within the Roman Empire were coming to know Jesus Christ because of these faithful Christians who had settled who Jesus Christ was and who was willing to suffer for doing what was right. They were trying to make their home a refuge. They were trying to make the body of believers a refuge so that even though they got beat up out there in the world, when they came home at night or when they went to church together, there was a place of encouragement. There was a place of refreshment. Comments? Questions? Well, you bring up a great point and one that I should have brought up because it's so cool that, yeah, you're right. You can, you can hear the emotion, I think, in Peter's words here because he knew how real it was because the time that he did have an opportunity to tell people about his Lord, he failed. But here's the cool thing. How many of us in this room have not failed at that time? But here's the cool thing. Peter struggled with that. And that's why if you want a cool passage to read, read the last chapter of the Gospel of John. Because Jesus comes to him after he failed. And Jesus wanted to restore Peter. And Jesus wanted to make sure that Peter knew that even though he failed, Jesus still loved him as much as he ever did. And that Jesus knew that Peter's potential was the guy who would get up on the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts and preach such a stirring message that thousands of people would come to know Christ. In other words, this story of Peter and his own personal struggle with this, standing up for Christ and denying Him and all of that, and then being restored by Christ, shows us that can we fail Christ? Yeah, just like Peter did. But we can come back from that failure. And God can still use us in a great way. God has forgiven us. We've got to forgive ourselves. And the biggest struggle that Peter had in the Gospel of John was that Peter had a hard time forgiving himself. And Jesus was like, look Peter, I forgive you. Put it behind you. Because I see in you that you have the potential to be a great servant for me. Don't let your past failure keep you from your present ministry to me. And Jesus is saying the same thing to all of us in this room. Because I would be right there. I'd say there have been times in my past where I failed the Lord miserably, especially to stand up for Him. When I had the opportunity to stand up for Him in public and declare my faith in Him. Totally missed the opportunity. And would go home and go, man, and I'm a pastor and I did that. I mean, that even makes it worse, you know? And yet Jesus would just very lovingly come and say, okay, you, you didn't take that opportunity, but I'm going to give you another one. Because God that we serve is the God of the second and the third and the fourth and the five thousandth chance and... I just think it's so cool that when we fall down, God is there to always lift us back up and pull us back into the game. As I've shared with you before, one of my favorite verses is Proverbs 24, 16, which says, although a righteous man may fall seven times, he gets back up every time. It's not that we're not going to fall, folks. We're all going to fall. We've got to be willing to get back up and allow Jesus Christ to get us back up because when we fall, He's going to be right there as the Good Shepherd reaching down his hand saying, okay, Jeff, you failed. Let's get back up and let's get back into the game. Remember, there's a verse in Isaiah that says, a crushed reed he won't break and a flickering wick he will not extinguish. 
the character of our God is such that He won't come along whenever our life is that flickering wick and like a human being would, see that the wick is about ready to go out and just go, ah, it's not good anymore. I'm just going to blow it out. No. The picture of God is that He comes along when that wick of our life is flickering and just about ready to go out and He tenderly blows on it to get it back and get it flaming and burning again so that it can be used for Him. Or that tender plant that has been snapped off and where some human being could just come by and just snap it the rest of the way off and throw it on the ground. That's not the character of God. Our life can look like that plant that's been snapped and Jesus is going to come along and He's going to pick up that that snapped off plant and He's going to get it back up and He's going to tie it around and He's going to make sure that that plant starts growing back up again. That's the character of our God. Steve, yes. I can tell you that real quickly. Jesus Christ is is my Savior because I have come to a place, Steve, where I am convinced He rose from the dead. See, for me, for me, the key was Jesus' resurrection. Just like Paul said in 1 Corinthians when he says, look, the key to our faith is the resurrection of Christ. If Christ did not rise from the dead, then Paul said, our faith is... I mean, there's nothing there. But if Jesus rose from the dead... So there was a time in my life where as a skeptic, I went about to disprove the resurrection of Christ and come to actually be more convinced than ever that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. See, for me, what I tell people is, I say, okay, you don't believe Jesus is is the Christ, the Son of God... Prove to me he didn't rise from the dead. Because I'll give you all the proof you want, historical and otherwise, that I believe Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And for me, in my heart, the non-preachy pastoral answer is, for me, I am convinced in the deepest recesses of my soul and mind that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. I'm convinced of that. There's all the evidence in the world to me for that. And because of that, you know, I just... And that's where I, I have to be careful because I've debated people on the resurrection of Christ. I had the privilege of debating the world's number one atheist at one time on the resurrection of Christ. And the key here was, here's this number one atheist, a guy who taught at Oxford in England for 30 years, had four PhDs by his name, and he couldn't come up with any good reasons of why he could argue against the resurrection. I'm thinking to myself, little old Jeff Royce from Western Maryland, okay? I'm thinking to myself, if a guy who taught at Oxford for 30 years was chairman of the philosophy department in in Oxford for 30 years has four PhDs by his name, if he can't come up with any good reasons why Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, I'm not going to bump into anybody on the sidewalk of Chandler that can come up with any reason why Jesus Christ rose from the dead. So that gave me extreme confidence in what I believed and why I believed it. It's like, you know what? The truth is the truth. And they, even though they deny that, well, you know, because he would say, he said, well, I know as an atheist, I can't believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Obviously, that would give my belief system a real problem but I choose not to believe it. Not because I have any evidence for it or against it. I just choose not to believe it. What is that? I mean, come on. You know, I'm just, I'm blown away by the lack. You know, for people who say, I choose not to believe that Jesus Christ, I, I am amazed at how many, when I challenge them on the resurrection of Christ, can come up with no alternative of why they believe that he didn't write. Because again, to me, that's where I go back to, Steve. I go back to, if you don't believe Jesus Christ is Lord, that's fine. Prove to me he didn't rise from the dead and I'll, I, I'll renounce my faith. Don't think they can do it. Somebody had a hand up over here. Yes, and then up back over here. No. Oh, exactly. Right. No, you bring up a great point. I always tell folks this. Look, 
I can't all of a sudden on one day when I'm challenged about my faith stand up if I am not in a sense communing with Jesus Christ on an everyday basis and building that, that relationship with Him because the more real Jesus Christ becomes to me in my personal relationship, the more I will be willing to stand up for, for that truth and that reality in my life and that comes from, a, and that's why I think Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread. And, and he wants us to come and commune and have that intimate personal relationship so that if it ever comes to a point where our faith is challenged and our belief is challenged, it's like I tell people, it's not a switch that we can flip on and off. I, I say that about worship. You know, for folks who come here on Sunday and they haven't worshiped God all week and they want to come here on Sunday and flip on the worship button and say, I'm going to come into Cornerstone and switch it on. It's hard to do that. The best worship is when I have worshipped God Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday is just an extension of my all-week-long worship. That's the way this should be. That as I set Jesus Christ apart in my heart Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, that on Friday, if God gives me an opportunity to stand up and witness for Him, I'm going to be more able and more enabled to do that because I've had that time each day with Him, and I'm communing with Him, and it's all part of a build-up that you're exactly right. It can't be just that one time, or I just flip on a switch, and there it is, and I, it, it needs to be just there all the time. And that's why Jesus said to Peter, sorry guys, I'm getting, that like in the Garden of Gethsemane, when, when Jesus knew what was coming, and He knew the temptation for Peter and the other disciples were coming, and how hard the next day was going to be when He went to the cross, Jesus was begging them, please stay up and pray with me in the Garden of Gethsemane because you don't know what's coming tomorrow, but I do. And you need to pray because you need all the spiritual strength you can get. And Peter and the other disciples, the Bible says, were too sleepy. They chose sleep over prayer and over time with God. And so what happens? They failed. And Jesus said to them, pray that you enter not into temptation. That was His command in the garden. Pray that you... you know, Take time to pray. Build up that strength. Oh, Jesus, I'm going to choose sleep. And they chose sleep. And the next day, Peter denied Him. Because he didn't take the opportunity to begin to build up and rebuild up what that relationship was. And that's the challenge for us. To take the time to pray, to get into the Word to be around other Christians who are pursuing God, to be encouraged in some way, to listen to Christian music, to do everything we can, to take every opportunity that we can avail ourselves to build ourselves up so that when those times come... Yes, sorry, over here. Walk no more with Him. Yeah, and isn't it interesting that that, that uh, reference is John 6, 6, 6? I've always found that interesting, you know. But yeah, they walk no more with Him. And, and that is a key because some people say, oh, all that, did that... No, It's very emphatic in the original language that that was a once and for all decision to turn their back forever on Christ. It's very strong. It's not like, uh, well, we followed Christ for a while and then we're going to choose to just sort of hang back and then maybe we'll get... No, that word in the original language means that they made a choice to say, no, this is not for me. I don't want any more of it for the rest of my life. And they made a once and for all decisive act to do that. Yeah, good stuff. Yes. No, that's, that's a good point. And, and knowledge is powerful. I mean, God says my people are destroyed because of lack of knowledge. And knowledge can be so powerful, not knowledge alone. I mean, certainly we need to apply it and transfer it to our life. But I just think about how many even Christians I've run into over the years who because they don't know what the Bible says about prophecy and about future things, they've always been worried about you know, nuclear war and the, and the world blowing up and not being here. And I try to tell them, again, just so that they will be relieved of all the anxiety they're going through unnecessarily. I say, hey, look, here's what the Bible teaches. 
The next event on the prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church. After that is seven years of tribulation. After that is the thousand year millennial kingdom reign of Christ. So that means that even if the rapture was to take place tonight, this world as we know it is going to be around for another thousand and seven years. Go to sleep tonight. Don't worry about it. Okay? Wow. If you know the Bible, you can go to sleep. You don't have to be so, you know. We're not, God's not going to let everybody blow everybody up. He's got plans for this earth as it is now for the next thousand and seven years. So even what you hear about global warming, guess what? God's got plans for this earth for another thousand and seven years. So go to sleep. Don't be all upset about it. <laughs> My wife will tell you, I twitch with things like that. I just do. I just do. Oh, goodness. I twitch in my sleep at night. All right. Guys, you have been wonderful. Let's close with a word of prayer. I'll hang around. Oh, don't forget to fight over the Diamondback tickets, okay? But remember, we are to bless each other now, not to curse, all right? Father God, thank you so much for this group and, Father, for their faithfulness to come out every Tuesday night to just be in your word. Lord, I thank you for the great questions and insights and comments that were shared tonight. And, Father, I can learn so much from these folks. But I just pray, too, that you'll just continue to use me to be a blessing to them because they are a blessing and an encouragement to me. Every Tuesday when I come here and see all these folks who've taken their time out of their schedule to be here, Lord, it's just such an encouragement. I pray that we'll continue to get the word out about this Bible study and just continue to see it grow. And, Father, I pray most of all that we will grow through it, that personally we will become more like Christ through our time together on Tuesday night. Take us all home safely. Bring us back next Tuesday, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys. You're great. You guys are great.